I'd like to have you turn to Genesis, the 28th chapter, and we want to continue our studies in the life of this patriarch, Jacob. He's one of my favorite characters. I think he's easy for most men to identify with. He's a man who found it very difficult to trust God. He, uh, he had a great heart, and he wanted all the right things. He wanted to be in the, in the mainstream of God's purposes for his chosen line, but he was a schemer and uh, the kind of man who was very capable and adequate. And it was hard for him to believe that he needed God to get things done. To the end of his days, he struggled with uh, this concept of, of believing God and trusting him and resting in his, his adequacy. The writer of Hebrews says that uh, at the end of his life, when he was pronouncing the blessing on his sons, he did so leaning upon his staff. And I suppose the point of that is that when Jacob was dying, he quit trying. He started trusting. It took him his whole life to learn how to trust God. But uh, he was a man whom God loved dearly. Scripture tells us that God loved Jacob. That's such an encouragement to me because Jacob was such a such a scoundrel, and uh, so much of his life is was lived outside of, of God's plan, but yet he's a man whose life God shaped and whose destiny uh, God assured. And we want to look at one incident in his life this morning from chapter 28. Let's begin reading uh, with the last verse of chapter 27 because it sets the stage for chapter 28. <laughs> And Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm tired of, of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Esau had, had married uh, the daughters of the land, the Hittites, and uh, that was a, a cause of real anguish in her family because the Hittites had no concept of God's plan to, to bring good news, to bring salvation to the world. They were outside the promised line, and they were spiritually dull and insensitive. They were a good people. They later became a very powerful people. They were a, a highly cultured people, but they just didn't understand the purpose that God had for his people. And uh, this was a cause of real heartache to... Uh, Isaac and Rebekah. And so in chapter 28, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, or the plains of Aram, up in uh, what today is Syria, near Damascus, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you that you may possess the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to the fields of Aram to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Syrian. 
the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. It was from this region that Rebekah herself came, and, and it was back to this locality that, uh, that Isaac sent Jacob to find a, find a wife. Now, there are two things, I think, that are worth observing in this paragraph. The first is the name which is ascribed to God. He's called God Almighty. Or, if you look in the margin of the New American Standard, the Hebrew word is El Shaddai. And this is one of those uh, words which Old Testament scholars have struggled with for years. No one knows exactly what it means. Some have thought because the Hebrew word for breast is shed that it might be indicative of God's uh, desire and willingness to nurture us as a child and nourish us, and that's a possibility. But the rabbis always thought that, that this term was taken from the Hebrew word die, which means enough. The God who is enough. And I, I think that makes the most sense in terms of the way it's used in the Old Testament. Back in chapter 17, it appears in the promise that's given to Abraham when he was 99 years old. And when Sarah had already passed through the change of life, her womb was dead. She could not conceive children, humanly speaking. God said, you'll have a child. And uh, Isaac was the result of that, of that promise. Abraham and Sarah didn't have anyone to count on. They'd been stripped of every resource but God. If it was going to happen, it would happen because God did it. And he did it. And he calls himself there the God who is enough. He's enough for you. He's all you need. The psalmist says in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven beside thee? And as long as I have you, what do I need on earth? Now, that's what God wants to teach Jacob, because Jacob was in very dire straits at this point in his life. He had just left his home. Jacob, you know, was, uh, he was from a good home. There was quite a bit of strife with his brother, but his mother loved him, and, and uh, his father was powerful and wealthy, and there was security there. And now he'd been driven out of that home. He couldn't go back because he knew Esau would kill him if he did. And he didn't know what lay before. He'd never been to a ram before. And, and there were just enormous uncertainties about going up to a ram. And he was living in a land where his life was in jeopardy every moment. The uh, merchants of that period never traveled through unarmed. They were always accompanied by mercenaries. There was a special uh, group of of warriors who accompanied merchants because of bandits and the danger of traveling on the roads in that part of the country. Uh, there's a story from Egypt called the story of Senui, who was an Egyptian nobleman who traveled through this area just about the time that Jacob did. The dates are almost identical. Uh, identical. And uh, he describes the land just as it's described in the Bible as a land flowing with milk and honey. He even uses that term because that was a very common idiom or describing a fruitful land, but he's, he also describes it as a place where there are giants, and he even encountered one of them. He calls a Rapha man. That's the, the equivalent of the Rephaim in the Old Testament. And through an ordeal by combat, he, he uh, defeats this man, almost loses his life, but he describes it as a very dangerous place to live. And, and now this is where Jacob has to venture, and, and he needs to know that God is enough. 
He can't depend on his family. He can't depend on his wealth. He can't depend on his resources. God's enough. And so God appears to him here and, and repeats the blessing that was given to Abraham. Verse 3, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you that you may possess the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. He just reiterates the, uh, the promise given to Abraham that he would have a seed, he'd be a great nation, and he'd have a land. What he's pointing out to Jacob is that this, uh, this journey to, to a ram is more than a journey to secure a wife. God has a higher destiny for Jacob than just finding a wife and finding security and wealth. Jacob did come back from Syria with a family, with 11 sons and a daughter and, a, and great wealth. But uh, that wasn't God's ultimate intention for Jacob. He had a higher destiny. His destiny was to bless the entire world, to be a source of fruitfulness and spiritual encouragement to the world. And that's something we need to keep in mind as well. There's nothing wrong with having a family and raising one, and there's nothing wrong with being successful in whatever vocation you choose. But, but that pursuit doesn't exhaust the uh, destiny, the purpose that God has for us. And if we stop short of that ultimate destiny, we're always frustrated. If we live for power or live to make money or live for our family, we'll never be satisfied. It's God's intention that wherever we go, we display the character of God and we share the good news about Jesus Christ and we bring people under Jesus Christ's discipline. We disciple them. That's what it means to store up treasure in heaven. It's okay to store up treasure here. That's no problem. Just That's not where we're to invest our time and heart and energy solely because it'll never satisfy. Never satisfy. What satisfies is fulfilling our eternal destiny. And, and that's what God is. It's that fact that uh, God is reminding Jacob, Jacob of here in this promise. Then in 6 through 9, we have a sort of parenthetical section, the purpose of which is to show us how spiritually dull Esau was. He just never got the picture. Jacob, for all of his uh, tendency to scheme and connive, understood that his destiny was spiritual. But Esau never got the picture. He was obtuse and spiritually blind and dull to the end of his days. When, I, when Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take to himself a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he charged him, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padanaram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac, and Esau went to Ishmael, the man who had been set aside, the man who was outside the covenant line. And he married beside the wives that he had, Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. He just never got the point. He's uh, typical of the, of the ungodly man, the man without God, who tries to redress a wrong by just doing something else evil. 
and he marries into this line that's been set aside, the line of Ishmael. And that's all set in contrast to Isaac, who understood what his purpose was. So in verse 10, the story continues. Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran, about 50 miles away, along the north-south route that, uh, uh, that today is the line of the modern uh, highway from Beersheba on up to the north, made his way past what today is the city of Jerusalem, and then over the hill to, to Bethel. And he happened to come to a certain place, and he spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under, put it under his head and lay down in that place. Now, the author here is, is laboring to try to get across the point that there was nothing very special about this place. Later, this was the location of the city of Bethel. At this time, it was called the city of Luz, and, and archaeologists digging there tell us that in Jacob's day it was a pile of ruin. The city of Luz had been shaken down by an earthquake and there was nothing but a pile of rocks there. Nothing special about the place. No one living there. Deserted, lonely, windswept portion of, of uh, the land. And Jacob just happened to come there because the sun went down and he needed a place to stay. And so he, he leaned up against a rock. It's not... Uh, he didn't use a rock as a pillow. No one with any sense would do that. He propped himself up against a rock, put his back against it, because that was he, was best, he could best protect himself in that way. And he probably laid out his weapons so that if someone assaulted him in the night, he'd be able to spring to his defense. So he fell into an uneasy sleep. And in the middle of the night, he had a dream, which was a revelation in verse 12. And he had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, I can remember in my Sunday school days pictures of Jacob asleep on a rock with a ladder with rungs on it reaching up into heaven. But that's not what Jacob saw. Uh, as far as we know, they didn't even have ladders like that back in those days. At least none have survived. And the word it's used here is not the word for a ladder. It's a word for a stone ramp. Now, let me tell you what Jacob saw, and let me tell you why it's so significant. What Jacob saw was a ziggurat, one of these uh, things that looks like a pyramid, a sort of terraced pyramid with a temple on the top and a stone ramp that led up to the top. Now, in those days, all the the pagan people of that time, that is, those outside the line of Israel, those who were idolatrous and, idolatrous and worshipped other gods, believed that the gods came down of heaven only as far as the top of these ziggurats. They never touched the earth. They came as far as the little house, they called it, that was on the top of the ziggurat. Now, in those days, they thought that God appeared to men on the top of mountains, and when the they migrated down out of the mountains into the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. Here's this great plain, and there weren't any mountains, so they built them. They built artificial mountains. That's what ziggurats were. And they built a temple on top, and that's where God visited man. And the priests would make their way up the stairway, and they would receive their 
so-called revelation from God, and then they would come back down and they would tell the people. But God never came down to earth. He only visited the little house in the top. That's a long way to the top of those, those pyramids. When I was in Mexico City about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, and we were looking at the temples of the sun outside of Mexico City, and the, and the crazy guy that was with, with me bet he could race me to the top of one of those things. And Mexico City is about, you know, it's about a mile high, and I made it about halfway up, and I thought I was going to have a coronary. It's a long way up there, and those steps are steep. That's hard work to get to the top. But that's what you had to do if you wanted to visit with God. Now, what Jacob saw, and I want you to understand, you see, God, God wants to communicate. And he comes right down on our level, and he speaks in terms and symbols that we understand. And so he used a term that Jacob would understand because this was the way God was worshipped in those days by the pagan nations. What Jacob saw was a ziggurat with a temple on top and angels coming up and down the stairs, but God wasn't up in the temple. He was standing right by Jacob's head. And that's the point of verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood beside him, not above it. If you look in the margin, the margin says beside him. And that's clearly the intent of, of the words. God was there with Jacob. He wasn't on the top of that hill. You see, the ancients, the ancient pagans, thought that God could not have anything to do with men. And what God is trying to tell Jacob is that despite Jacob's trickery and his tendency to scheme and the, uh, and, and the times, the time and time, uh, and again, Jacob failed to be what God intended him to be. God was present. He was right there with Jacob. He was on the spot in this so-called God-forsaken place. God was there, right there with Jacob. Jacob didn't need to go up on top of the hill to meet God. God was there with him. And behold, the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Now he states again the promise that was given to Abraham. Here it doesn't come through Isaac, but directly through God, that he would make of him a great nation, and he would give him the land of Canaan, and he would fulfill through his line his plan to bring salvation to the earth, that through Jacob God would bless the entire world. The good news about God, that God loves and cares, that he knows that he's done something about, about our, our sin and our rebellion and our powerlessness, that good news is going to come through Jacob's line, and that's promised to Jacob. And furthermore, he says, I'm with you. I'll always be with you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. And he was afraid. And he said, How awesome is this place. This is the house of God. 
this is the gate of heaven. This is where you have access to God. The doors to heaven are here. This is God's house. This is where he lives. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top, and he called the name of that place Bethel, or the house of God. The word for house in Hebrew is Beit. El is the short form of Elohim. It's Bethel, the house of God. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will indeed be with me, and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, and the Lord is truly my God, then this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that thou dost give me, I will surely give a tent to thee. Now the nation of Israel didn't fully understand what God revealed to Jacob because they made Bethel the site a holy place and this was a place that came down in Israel's history as both a place where they worshipped God and later on where they worshipped idols that was a place where Jeroboam set up his uh, his gold calves and where he induced the, the northern kingdom to fall into idolatry and uh, later on Amos in describing this place says don't go up to Bethel to seek God just seek him where you are they, they missed the point the point wasn't that this place and this, this place alone was the house of God. Jacob saw clearly that wherever he was was the house of God. He named this location Bethel, the house of God, because that's where God revealed himself to him and he first learned this principle. But he also understands that God will be with him. He uses that phrase wherever he goes. Now, hard times were ahead for Jacob. He went off to Haran, and he met his match in Haran. Rebekah's brother Label, uh, Laban was a bigger con man than, than Jacob was, and he out-tricked him and out-schemed him and out-maneuvered out him and just made a fool of Jacob over and over again. And Jacob himself resorted to magic because Laban was an occultist, and, and, and Jacob veered away at times from God's, God's course for him. But... God was with him, and he brought him back from, from Haran, a wealthy man with a family, and he brought him back to Bethel. If you turn to chapter 35, verse 1, then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and live there. Make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments, because they had picked up idol worship while they were in Haran. And let us arise and go to Bethel, and I'll make an altar there to the God who answers me. And he uses a, a Hebrew mood that signifies something that's going on all the time. This is the God who keeps on answering me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So Jacob understood that everywhere he went was the house of God. There was no special place where God revealed himself. There was no special place where God was available to help. God was always available to help. 
one of the marks of maturity, I think, in all of us is when we come to the place that we recognize that God is in everything. He's in every place. He's in every circumstance. And we learn, as the psalmist puts us, that the nearness of God is my good. We tend to draw our security from our family, our home, our place of business, our automobiles, our schools, our wealth, our educational background, our personality, our physical strength. And we forget that God and God alone is enough. And it's the nearness of God that is our good. That's what counts, is recognizing the presence of God in everything. You ever think that about a sink load of dirty dishes? That that's the house of God? You know, you've worked all afternoon to cook a meal, and your family gobbles it up in five minutes or less, and they take off. They shouldn't, but sometimes they do, and you're left with a sink full of dirty dishes. And that's bound to gripe you a little bit. That might make you a little bit irritable. But that pile of dirty dishes is the house of God. That house, that kitchen is a sanctuary. That's where God is. Or maybe your husband has walked out off and that's a lonely house. It's a big, barny, empty, cold, lonely house. But that's the house of God. Or your children have gone and you miss them desperately. That house is the house of God. Or your office is a place where, where God's name is profaned and nobody ever gives God the time of day. They couldn't care less. And everybody's thinking is secular and natural, but that's God's house. And that's what we need to see. It's God's presence. No, it's, it's, it's our presence, you see, that sanctifies every place that we go because everywhere we go, that's where God is. He's in our car. He's in our house. He's in our office. He's in our schoolroom. He's in every circumstance of life. That's Bethel. That's the house of God. Carolyn pointed out something to me once in, uh, in Psalm 90, which is the only psalm that we're certain... Uh, that Moses wrote, uh, he, he introduces that psalm by saying, God has been our dwelling place from generation to generation. And Carolyn pointed out that Moses never had a home. He never had a place he could call his own. The first 40 years of his life, he was in Egypt. And he was a Hebrew, so he was out of step there. The second 40 years of his life, he was in Midian, and he didn't belong there. In fact, he named his first son Gershom, which means a stranger there which indicates he never felt that he was anything more than an exile in Midian. And the final 40 years of his life, he lived to be 120, was in, was in the wilderness, and he certainly was never at home there. He never set foot in the land that he could call home. But he says in Psalm 90, God has been my resting place, my dwelling place, from generation to generation, because wherever he was, God was, and that was home. That was the house of God. Have we learned that? That's a hard one to learn because some things don't look like they're the house of God and some circumstances don't seem to be the house of God. Hank Keller was telling me 
last week that he was trying to get home from Southern California. And with the United Airlines flight, you know, you never know what, what's going to happen. And he had scheduled some dogleg course to get here. And uh, he it would have taken him. It was going to take him quite a bit of time. And it took him a lot of time to set the thing up. And he talked to the clerk before he went to get something to eat. And the clerk said the plane leaves at 4.20. And so Hank showed up at 4 o'clock just in time to see the plane taking off. And the clerk had been wrong. And so Hank spent seven hours sitting in the waiting room of the airport waiting for the next plane that would get him home. Now that's, you know, that sort of thing tends to make you mad. It does me. Just sit there and cool your heels. And you start thinking, and there must be a reason for all this. You know, maybe that plane's going to crash and God save me because we don't think of all the people that crash with it, but that's the way we think. But it didn't crash. And then we start thinking, no, maybe the plane I'm on is going to crash, and that's the way God's going to take me. <laughs> you know, we have all these ways of figuring out why God is doing what he's doing, but we, we never know. We don't need to know. All we need to know is that God is in every circumstance. That's why James says, look, you businessmen, when you say we're going to go to such and such a place and do business, say, if God wills. We're going to do that because God has the right to alter our schedule and change things up and to introduce into our life some very uh, hazardous or some very hard times. And we need to see God's hand in every circumstance. It's the nearness of God that's our good. When our husband is late for dinner and forgets to call us and the meal is getting cold, and you've been working on it for a long time. He shouldn't do that, but that's God's hand in your life. When you plan a vacation and your kids get sick and the whole thing gets wiped out, that's God's hand in your life. When you set out to make some big deal and it all falls through at the last minute because something happened that's way beyond your control, that's God's hand. And you need, we need, I need to see every circumstance as the house of God. God is at work in and through me to accomplish his will. I was reading last uh, week in Christianity Today an article by J. Hudson Taylor, who, as you might surmise, is uh, the uh, grandson of, of Hudson Taylor, and uh, is uh, he's quite a well-known scholar and thinker in, in uh, that part of the world. He is the president of Saigon Seminary in uh, uh, Korea. And when the United States broke diplomatic relations with Taiwan, it caused an enormous amount of upset among the Christians in Taiwan because there are a lot of Christians there uh, in the hundreds of thousands. And they found it very difficult to understand how the United States could, at least in their way of thinking, betray them. And uh, so they wrote, a number of them wrote to uh, Dr. Taylor, and he reminded them of a psalm that he and other children of missionary parents had sung when they were being taken off to concentration camps uh, in the Second World War. It's Psalm 46. And it goes like this. God is our refuge and strength. He's always available to help. He's not off there on the mountain. He's not even right here alongside. We know from from the New Testament revelation of our relationship to him that he's right here. 
So it's always present to help. So every place we go is the house of God. Every circumstance is an occasion for God to work. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth changes and the mountains slide into the sea, though uh, nations do upsetting things, and though there are there's wide scale upset, the mountains just slide off into the sea. We will not fear. God is in the midst of her, down in verse 5, that is, God's people. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. You know, Jacob never did get his act together. He struggled with God to the very end of his days. He had good days and bad days, and there were times when he walked in the flesh, and there were times when he tried to scheme and work things out his own way. But God loved him to the end, and God cared about him, and God was his God. He wasn't ashamed to be aligned with Jacob. It didn't embarrass God to be called the God of Jacob. And that means that God's not embarrassed to be aligned with me, to be with me in every situation. We sometimes think that when we, when we make a little more progress in our Christian life, when we get everything going well, then God is going to be available to us. But this psalm and the story that we read about Jacob tells us that God is available to help us now. We don't have to wait. We don't somehow have to work ourselves into God's good graces. We don't have to earn the right to experience His presence. We can know experientially today the nearness of God. And that's what transforms our character. That's what enables us to be godlike in every situation. See, that's really what God wants. It's not being irritable when you face a load of dirty dishes, it's not panicking when it looks like your business is going to fail. It's not giving way to despair when your children begin to struggle and resist God's will. It's recognizing the nearness of God. He's in everything. He's present everywhere. And He's fulfilling in us, as He did in Jacob, His purpose, His eternal purpose. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Father that we can trust you, that you've given us what we need. You've given us yourself, and that's enough. Teach us, Lord, to use the world but not trust it. Deliver us from the feeling that somehow if we just struggle long enough and work hard enough that the things that we're pursuing apart from God will satisfy us and help us just to learn to be satisfied with you and you alone. Thank you that you're doing that. In Jesus' name, amen.